Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts, just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. Today, we're meeting Julie Christrap, the powerhouse president of EuroACE and vice chair of the Renovate Europe campaign, who's taking up the world of policy and thought leadership for Venox. With an impressive track record in advocacy and stakeholder engagement, Julie has been at the forefront of the energy efficiency movement in Europe, contributing to its rise on the policy agenda in recent years. Julie's expertise in energy and the environment has also taken her to the top of the Brussels Energy Construction and Environment Practice at Danfoss, APCO Worldwide and the European Copper Institute. Her extensive experience in all aspects of advocacy and stakeholder engagement means that she knows how to get things done and make a real impact. So join us as we delve into Julie's fascinating journey, exploring her impressive career and gaining insight into the world of energy efficiency in the construction sector and policymaking. Julie, welcome to Energetic. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. So let's dive into your fascinating journey. And what inspired you to join, let's say, the industrial side of energy efficiency uh, through the construction sector? And how did your experience shape your vision for the future of energy efficiency in particular? So, I mean, I arrived in Brussels back in 2006. And like many other people, I arrived here having done an internship, in my case, at the Commission Delegation in D.C., and before I left over there, I, I got like a, a list of, of names of people to contact, as, as you do in Brussels. And I came to Brussels, I contacted all these people, and uh, for my sins, ended up in, in Big Pharma uh, Biotech. And I worked in that field for three, four, five years, and wanted to move off to something else. And then it was partly strategic choice and partly a coincidence that I ended up with uh, a Danish company called uh, Danfoss, uh, which is active in the heating, cooling, air conditioning space. You know, I say strategic in the sense that having come from big pharma and biotech, uh, which is a sector where there's very little competence at European level, I wanted to move into a field where there was a lot of competence for uh, for policymaking at uh, at European level. And at the same time, already back then, having lived uh, abroad from Denmark for a few years, I was quite attracted to this idea of coming to a, a big Danish household name in, in that sort of energy space. So yeah, I mean, one thing sort of took the other. I, I started there and uh, and ever since, so since uh, 2011, um, I've been working sort of broadly in the energy and, uh, and, and, and climate space. Wow, that's so interesting that you also managed to combine this experience focusing on also your uh, home country and building out this, this experience really, because Brussels can be a very confusing place sometimes uh, where people are asked to work on a certain topic where they are actually when they go back home, nobody knows what they are talking about. So you managed to, to make those world coincide. And uh, so somehow maybe it was easier or was it? Was it easier? I mean, I think in a, in a Danish context, certainly, we've been talking about uh, sort of energy and energy efficiency of a lot longer than at European level. And I mean, my my previous company, uh, Danfoss, just like Velux, are really sort of household names. So I think there was definitely sort of a an understanding of what it is I, I broadly did. I think what's changed significantly over the years is the understanding of what lobbying is and what sort of role the EU plays. I used to say that 
when I started off in, in big pharma, if I said that at a party at uh, in Denmark on a Friday evening, I'm a lobbyist in the pharma sector, the room just went quiet, right? <laughs> partly because of the reputation of the pharma sector and partly because this sort of notion of being a lobbyist was sort of a, a perceived to be something that was somehow dirty. Um, and I think there's perception of what we do, the understanding of what we do and the understanding of sort of tremendous role we actually play in policymaking uh, has changed for the better um, over the years. And what's also uh, changed significantly, of course, is the overall sort of a uh, perception and interest in energy and climate as, as, as topics, right? I mean, back when I started, as I said, I mean, uh, in, in Denmark, we've always um, had a, a number of big uh, companies uh, work in that space, incidentally, because we took the uh, energy crisis in the 70s as a starting point for really growing that industry. But in the European space, it was a topic that was of interest to rather few people. Um, and of course, that's changed tremendously to today, where really sort of energy and also energy efficiency is, uh, is top of mind across uh, policymakers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what is really interesting in this journey is that you managed to bring a lot of expertise from what was done in Denmark to the European forefront and really to the European policy uh, discussion. And that is, of course, incredibly valuable. So let's move really towards the discussion over the net zero future and what the objectives are. So what at the time and did you see as the main challenges? And right now, in your view, what are they like? What are we exposed to really? So mm. first before and now. Yeah. So having started off in energy efficiency back at Danfoss and then having done sort of various loops through sort of broader energy and, uh, and and climate circles as well. I mean, I think at the time when I started, the first thing we were fighting for was just recognition of the importance of the topic. So energy efficiency, but something else that's always sort of followed me throughout my career is, uh, is the building stock, right? So uh, also this notion of, of renovating the existing building stock. And I mean, when I started back in 2011 and that failed, there was not much of an understanding that this is important. Uh, there was a focus on new build. There was a focus on regulation around new build. Um, and we really sort of worked in that period since, uh, both at company level, but also through uh, Euroace and the Renovate Europe campaign that was set up by Euroace around the same time to, to further this understanding that there is a lot to be gained from renovating our building stock. So we've gone from relative obscurity in terms of the impact of that to being very sort of top of mind. Then the other thing that's changed is the reason for why this makes sense. Um, and I think at the time, it was very much sort of a climate narrative. It's about sort of saving the polar bears. You've got to be sort of populistic about it. Then I think there was a, a piece a little bit later where also the commission really drove this agenda of a monetary sort of a impact, right? It's back when the commission talked a lot about the labels as well. And if you choose this fridge or that fridge, you can save X amount of euros um, over the years. So the different arguments for why this makes sense have really shifted over the years. But of course, the basis remains the same. That's also been very, very interesting. Um, now with uh, not just Corona, uh, but also the uh, invasion in Ukraine, we're talking about an energy. And that's yet another layer of arguments to the same overall sort of uh, uh, arguments about the benefits of, uh, of energy efficiency. And that also means that we, in terms of who we talk to and how we talk to them, um, have had, of course, to adapt our, our message, right? So today, no one's uh, doubting the importance of energy efficiency, where the issue is now is in the actual execution thereof. 
Liquid Vision talks about energy efficiency first, but then they move on to something else, right? Mm-hmm. So there is a recognition that this makes sense, but what are then the concrete steps uh, that follow on uh, from that recognition? That That's where we are today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing I've seen tremendously, sorry, is, is that the field is a lot more crowded, right? Because everyone today, also the policymakers, want to be invested in this field. This is something that resonates with populations, uh, and the population is also purchased. And so the kind of MEP who's interested today is a much broader type of personality than it used to be 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally uh, second uh, this observation also because my background is more on consumer issues and energy poverty. And about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, the discussion over how to overcome energy poverty was mostly turning around vulnerable consumers, vulnerable people. And talking about the building envelope was never really a priority, was never really a uh, an angle that was even mentioned. And a few episodes ago, we had Teresa Griffin, the former MEP, who was one of the pioneers of the uh, articulation between energy poverty and really energy efficiency and the envelopment. And since then, so I think it was back in 2015, the uh, landscape and the narrative has changed tremendously. And I also feel that with the COVID uh, restrictions and the, all the plans uh, to, to inject money into the economy, there has been an enormous shift and also in an English push for investment into really the envelope of building and really the construction sector. And my question, it's also because, you know, I live in Italy and I am also a person who lives in the building, you know, but I noticed that there are so many skills that are still missing. Is this something you are confronted to? I mean, I know as Velux, it's a very particular industry. It's about the windows, probably more, but I'm not a, some other products. But also, it must be a conversation that comes very often at your race, isn't it? Yes, I mean, of course, I think the skills issue is uh, is is huge, right? I think, and incidentally, I was just having coffee with somebody the other day talking about it. I think what we sometimes get wrong in that conversation is there's an understanding that we're missing the actual, the, the final person, so the person who actually installs the window with the heat pump. But what we actually need to do is massively upscale the whole sort of like value chain of people in energy and energy efficiency. So yes, the people are installing the product, but also the admin people, the project managers, the energy advisors, so on and so forth. So it's a massive undertaking. And I mean, there are a few sort of structural issues there that make it relatively hard to address. And one key structural issue is that many, many of these um, installing uh, companies are very small. Uh, typically, if you talk about new build, uh, we're talking about sort of bigger entrepreneurs, but typically renovation work and installing in, in installation works is typically done in smaller uh, companies. And so that means that there are so many different actors you need to reach here. And we also need to 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 understand that if you have a small business and you've been installing, say, uh, gas boilers for the past 20 years, then that's your expertise. That's where you feel comfortable. That's where you know you can deliver a good product to your customer. And so to get these people on a journey where they go in and say, well, hang on a minute, maybe you'd be better off with a heat pump. And also while you're at it, why not look at this, this, this and that? That's a massive undertaking, but one we need to get in. And of course, you know, both as Velux and also the industry, we're very invested in this because it's also our reputation at stake. Because at the end of the day, our products depend on good workmanship. They depend on being installed correctly. If they're not, they're not delivering the quality and the performance that we um, sold the, uh, the, the end customers. 
So we are very invested in that industry and we are very interested in looking at how we can streamline, for instance, trainings to make sure that we can really sort of upscale a big group of people quickly. But it's not, e- it's not easy. Yeah. Do you think or do you see that the European Commission grasps uh, the extent of the challenge? I mean, I think they do. I think the problem is, and then we're back to sort of the, the, the competence, there's relatively little competence at European level on these things. So, I mean, I think what the Commission could do and should do is something akin to what they did for uh, the academic system. So, sort of streamlining what constitutes a bachelor's, what constitutes a master's. So, if you could imagine some sort of modular course form that people could take whereby they would able to take a certain course that would then also be recognized across member states. That sort of thing could be useful. I think there's also an information campaign in this and just attracting people to this sort of big group of very diverse sort of jobs uh, where, I mean, today we, we do have an issue, right? One of the most obvious issues that there is also an effort on is, is, is getting women into the trades, but there are many more issues that uh, that mean that too big a group of people are not considering jobs in, in, in this sector and that needs to change. We, we, we need all men in the deck and all women as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's really interesting to have this conversation now uh, for many reasons, including because it's the European Year of Skills. Uh, so maybe somehow they acknowledge that something needs to be addressed and tackled. And the second reason is that the other day, me and a team of colleagues, we organized an event in a hybrid event between Africa and Europe in, in Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso, where we really had this conversation about the lack of skills and how the lack of skills really harm the reputation and harm trusts also in the net zero transition. You know, as, as Vlux as well, I mean, we uh, we spend a lot of time on training, right? Because we, we are dependent on having a very close relationship with the installers because they are the ones. We deliver a good product, but we're depending on that being installed correctly. Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 it's very important for us and it's something we take very seriously. Yeah, it's, it feels as if renovation is now something policymakers are, they are quite uh, thrilled about the idea of renovation, but it's also the job of the industry to help them understand that they need to orient a lot of the resources towards making those renovation happen for real. Yeah, I think that's true. And that's also why, you know, busy times in Brussels, right? Um, so the EED is true. The EPD, the European Parliament, uh, just agreed in their report last week, and that's not going trilogue. Uh, we also had the Net Zero Industrial Act uh, within the last couple of weeks. And I think the one thing that's for us is really important in the EPBD that's so far still in, but we'll see how it goes for the trilogue. Yeah, just suppose EPBD is Energy Performance of Building Directive. Yes. So the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive is very important for us in the industry because the EED, so the Energy Efficiency Directive, sets the overall sort of framework for ambition. But the EPBD delivers the execution part of it. And so one of the things that's, that's in, that's been much contested, this notion of the minimum energy performance standard, CMEPS, and what that does is basically to go in and say, okay, at what point in a building's life do you need to renovate and what is the standard you need to renovate it to? And the reason why that's so important is to basically ensure a way forward for the industry because by doing that, you will have a certain amount of volume. You will know that by this time, approximate this amount of buildings need to be renovated. That will create certainty in a sector. 
that creates certainty for people like us who sell construction products, but it also creates certainty for those people who may want to work in the sector, right? And so that's why it's so important for us to have this framework with some concrete steps because it just it underpins that this is a way forward. We've decided this is a way forward. We've put in step these way uh, in, in motion these steps to make sure we reach that, and that will create certainty for investors um, and for those wanting to come into industry as well. Okay, that's really interesting. And we need that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's in- really interesting to have this view because I had the view on maps as one of the ways to protect and shield people from living in uh, deteriorating. Uh, building deteriorating houses and as one of the instruments to really address concretely energy poverty because of the poor quality of the housing. But that's really, really interesting to hear the industry side of it, which is really about creating subcertainty. So it's about creating markets really for, for renovation that is stable and that will go for the long uh, run and that uh, keeps on attracting investment and keeps on being high on political agenda, whether it is urban or or national. So when it comes to really those regulatory opportunities at EU level, in your view, what frameworks do you think hold really this most potential in addressing those issues? They may be European, but maybe something, there are some national initiatives that you are aware of. And do you see any particular key actors that tend to be overlooked in the part in the conversation? Yeah. So I just pointed out the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive because that is very instrumental in actually being sort of fairly nitty-gritty about what it is we want to see going forward. I mean, you can argue that something that's actually very instrumental for European uh, policy at the moment is the uh, Inflation Production Act in the US because what that did was to wake up Europe to the fact that we can't take for granted that we are leading the path when it comes to uh, uh, clean tech, yeah. green tech, right? And uh, I've heard a lot of people in the commission who uh, said that that was really a wake-up call, yeah. right? We are just not automatically going to coast along being the leading providers of these technologies if we don't do anything to protect that. I think from our perspective in energy efficiency industry, the response, which is this sort of a industrial act that came out last week, is then somewhat disappointing because what that does, unlike the IRA, is it goes in and pinpoints specific sectors mm-hmm where we have room to develop European expertise instead of also looking at areas where we really have expertise, okay. such as energy efficiency. And that for us is an internal frustration because here is a field where we're already leading the pack, where we have the solutions. We're not waiting for Eureka moment. We have pretty much all the solutions out there. Mm-hmm. We know because the IA keeps on telling us that you know energy efficiency solutions available today can make up more than 40% of the CO2 savings we need to achieve to become climate neutral, right? <laughs> so we know we've got solutions. We've got them right now. We've got some hurdles in terms of sort of uh, getting them to the masses, but they exist today. Yeah. And so we would have liked the IRA to also be an eye-opener, not just on the technologies we need to develop, but on technologies we have today that just need that loss of getting him sort of uh, to, to a higher uh, penetration. Okay, okay. So do you believe that this industrial plan, European industrial plan is really too much focusing on hope rather than than concrete solutions and some... Is it missing the point? I think it's not missing the point because I think it does some interesting things for those sectors and I think it will help unblock some bottlenecks. But I do think overall 
uh, we have this tendency to look for the next big thing, the silver bullet, right? Rather than look at what we already have that could take off now. And I mean, let's not forget, I mean, that's why building renovation was a big part of the uh, uh, Corona plan, actually. It was because it was available. We could upscale it now. We can start uh, the renovation works now. But then when done looking sort of to some to long-term future, we, 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 we sort of seem to watch something that is more futuristic instead of looking at what we have now. And I think you need to do both. And I think you need an industrial plan that, that focuses on both because it's not either all, it's everything. We can't pick a few industries and then not focus on the rest. We don't have a time for that. Um, and we know that. Yeah, yeah. It's- and I think in general... But we see that also with energy efficiency, right? I mean, a big offshore energy island, that's a sexy project. It's new, it's big, it requires a lot of funding. To get the same effect from renovation or from energy efficiency, you could do a ton of small projects and they just don't have the same sway. It doesn't have the same perception of cool and different and avant-garde and forward-looking. Yeah, it's not as sexy. Uh, somehow. It, it is just not a sexy, right? Mm. Yep. And uh, I've said for a while now that surely uh, boring should be the new sexy, right? And <laughs> this what we live in. But somehow we haven't quite gotten there yet. Yeah, that's a good one. Boring is the new sexy. But indeed, that's uh, really about working on the on the core, working on what we already have, working on really the uh, assessing and doing all the uh, heavy lifting that are quite invisible. And Sometimes I feel that the European level really wants to make their achievements extremely visible, rather and picturesque somehow uh, for them, their upcoming communication campaign, rather than than make sure that it actually penetrates the house of the people and uh, changes their daily lives. Uh, but uh, at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned the the labels, like on the appliances, and later you you mentioned the the minimum energy performance standards, the MEPS. Those are super concrete measures, and they remain quite invisible. But in the sense that when you need to purchase, I don't know, washing machine or whatever, the aesthetic is usually not what you take first into consideration. But thanks to those very very clear information, you get into something efficient and maybe I mean that also triggers some action from the from the industrial side to to get into something a little bit uh, yeah way more efficient so somehow the sexiness has to be until a certain point isn't it absolutely I mean I uh, I'm all about pragmatism right I mean if we can't move forward then uh, a good idea that remains a good idea is not useful um so not this moment in time and, and incidentally, these energy labels, yes, they're very popular, but I don't think people actually understand what they're reading. And you can argue that doesn't matter because it has helped shift the market towards um, higher functioning uh, products. But, uh, you know, I think we also just need to understand that the average person just does not have the same level of interest, of course, we do um, in this. And I think very often, you know, as I'm sat here in my ivory tower in Brussels, we also forget that, you know, it's, uh, I often have to remind myself that I'm in no way a representative person. I have a disproportional uh, amount of interest. I have a disproportional amount of um, education. I live in the capital of Europe. 
I am not an average European citizen. But, you know, I think coming back to what you said about how you viewed uh, MEPS as being sort of mainly about sort of energy poverty. I mean, I think that's a really great thing about energy efficiency. And one of the things we still have not managed to explain well enough, because for me, the beauty of renovation and energy efficiency more broadly is that it really is something in it for everyone. Because to your point, it, it absolutely does help raise people out of energy poverty. And we know at, uh, at VLOX, we do um, every year or every second year, this uh, health health barometer who looks specifically sort of like the um, the impact of uh, of your housing for of health and well-being. And there is an enormous amount of Europeans who who live in, in housing that suffers from one or, or several big issues, right, drafts, right, humidity, uh, and so on and so forth, right? I mean, actually about one in, one in three. And the other thing we found when we looked at that data is people tend to think that that's in certain member states. That's not the case. It's actually pretty much across member states that there's a huge amount of people who just live in dwellings that are not in different areas up to 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 the park. And so we know that renovation, for instance, also, if done well, impacts the indoor uh, environment quality. And that's about well-being, but it's also about health, which makes people feel better, they're less uh, ill from school, you know, they perform better at work, so on and so forth. So again, there's this very sort of human aspect about it. People are leading better lives, but there's also sort of a hardcore financial aspect of it because people who are less ill cost less to society. Kids who do better at school get better results. So I think the beauty here is that there really is something for everyone in the argument. We're just not good enough at rolling it out. You know, there's a climate argument, there is a nature argument, there's a well-being argument, there's a, a financial argument. So this ought to be someone who was something that everyone was into because it touches every one of us. Every one of us lives somewhere. Every one of us goes somewhere for for, for, for training, for work sports for whatever, right? I mean, we spend about 90% of our time indoors uh, in Europe on average, right? So whatever we do to our housing or our building stock is, is has a huge impact on how we feel and how we perform as humans, right? And that message is starting to creep through, but it hasn't really come through. Yeah, 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 no, I totally agree. And I mean, I feel that I had this conversation for many, many years, like on the potential on it, of energy efficiency. And until recently, it was mainly limited to uh, pilot projects where you would have uh, some companies that would come and fix uh, things from at the outside without uh, disturbing indoor, uh, like uh, inside people's lives and etc. And And right now, the fact that the industry is actually taking ownership of this narrative around well-being, around the fact that it is useful for the people, for the planet, uh, for the economy as well. I find it really, really fascinating. And it's extremely new. I mean, it's been on pipes since since only maybe maybe three years, but maybe, maybe actually since COVID, because we started to all realize that we were living in, we were spending so much time indoors. And um and that's really where I noticed the, the shift in the narrative uh, at at urban level. But I'm and I'm still like still quite uh, amazed how now the industry is is taking ownership of it. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about uh, your ACE and Renovate Europe and what are actually those campaigns or instruments? Yeah. So I mean, your ACE or energy efficient buildings, as our tagline is now, because your ACE is. Uh, again, one of those acronyms that no one knows uh, what it is, is an association for companies basically producing energy-efficient products or services. And so we have direct corporate members. 
We have uh, 14 um, at the moment. And we're celebrating our 25th anniversary this year. So we've been around for a while. And uh, Renovate Europe uh, has been around for about uh, 12 years. And so what Euroace wants to do is really to lead the discussion on energy efficiency in the building stock. What is it we need at European level, at member state level, and how do we make sure that we upgrade our building stock? The Renovate Europe campaign, as the name suggests, is a specific campaign that focuses around reducing the energy demand of building stock by 80% through renovation. And the Renovate Europe campaign was born out of Eurace, and Eurace still runs Sectariat, but also has a number of other members, uh, including national partners and including European partners. So we're just under 50 at the moment, so it's quite a sensitive animal. And I think what, what Renovate Europe does that's really important is it reaches into member states. So we have at the moment 18 national partners, and those look very different depending on member states. But it gives us a really sort of way in to discuss also at local level what the local context is, because buildings are very national, regional, even local in terms of traditions, in terms of uh, climate conditions. So, so therefore, it's very, very important to take that into mind when you're talking about what the right solutions um, are. So we work on the political level in terms of reputation, but we also do a lot of really sort of practical and quite geeky things, such as if you're doing like an energy renovation one-stop shop, how does that look in Hungary? Can they learn from that in Ireland? What do they do in Germany? So, I mean, we find, and this is something we've really developed during COVID, by the way, because we're forced online, of course, we found that on top of doing these sort of like Brussels uh, events, we were actually able to bring a lot of people together virtually who have a deep knowledge and a deep interest and who are working really at a very sort of local level and need very concrete answers. Because very often what we find is there, there is a will, but there is a lack of competence and there's a lack of time at local level to uh, to implement. And so anything we bring also just in very sort of tangible, sort of practical terms in terms of this is best practice here. These are these figures that we've put together here that might be useful for you. All of that is really very, very important in our, in our job. And so some of the things we've done as well that have been really helpful is to commission research on, you know, exactly what we're talking about here. What are the benefits of doing energy efficiency? How many local jobs do you create if you invest in energy efficiency? What sort of measures have most of an impact? These sort of things that we very often struggle to find, but that have validated our points with uh, with policymakers. And so today, I'd say certainly in, uh, in in Brussels, we really are the go-to association on stuff like EED and EPD when it comes to the building uh, perspective of things. Yeah, and that's really, really interesting to have this coordination of ideas to really enable them to to take off and to uh, to be really visible at a political level. As you said, now... Uh, Policymakers seems quite convinced of the importance of that, but still at the national level, uh, I mean, I think we could see that very, very clearly in Italy with all the confusions we had over a particular bonus to renovate, etc. That still needs a lot of heavy lifting and really a lot of support from many counterparts to reshare the good experience and teach about uh, the way it's done in other contexts, really. And I think if we also just dwell at the Italy example, right? I mean, for years, of course, the super, bo- super bonus was something we held high and, and talked about in other member states. And now Italy has gone from being sort of leading the pack and from having done a really good job in terms of increasing renovation and increasing deep renovation to being basically back to not even square one, but below, right? 
So it also goes to to show that you need to sustain the effort, right? You can't take things for granted. I mean, you would have thought in Italy, this was a very well-received scheme. It did what it's supposed to do. And then there's a shift in government and you're back to to where you came from. So the work continues and the, the pressure needs to be constant. Yeah. No, in Italy, it also suffers from uh, terrible publicity because there has been a lot of uh, mishandling of the funding and uh, things that could have been avoided. I mean, for instance, for me, coming from the energy poverty sector, I was kind of shocked when I discovered that the the full coverage of the renovation would be for anyone, whatever your level of income, whereas it was never particularly targeted at buildings or people where people experiencing energy poverty were, were actually living. And for me, it was it was kind of I mean, something is missing. There, something will be going off at a certain moment because because of this crazy envelope going to anyone really without targeting support. And at the end of 2021, we had a conversation with Audrey Dobbins really on targeted support for energy efficiency and and it was in her research. It was really about what was done in in Germany. But she was saying at the time. It's important to address energy poverty. You really need to target uh, the money towards those who actually need it and and incentivize by other means those who can afford most of it. But but as you said, this topic is so sensitive because it it member states still have so much power in in the conversation, and some of them see that as a maybe as something not as shiny or visible or sexy as we mentioned before, as, uh, I don't know, another policy or, or something else. But I guess they are, they may be also afraid of this kind of NIMBY phenomenon. I mean, you see uh, wind turbines, for instance, that can be, you receive a lot of opposition to this kind of things that are part of the conversation. So what would be your kind of role in, I mean, you have such a, a background into uh, really stakeholder engagement. So what is your reaction when you hear this kind of opposition, really? I think at the end of the day, as comms people, which we are also, right, if people don't hear our arguments or don't understand our arguments, it's because we're not phrasing them correctly, right? We're the ones with the problem in a sense that we want, we want people To move. So if we're not managing to get through to policymakers with the language we're currently using or the facts we're currently using, then we need to change something in the way that we communicate. I think that's uh, that's the truth. And so I think in our world, like in many other worlds, we do have a tendency to talk to each other, right? And here we are agreeing that these topics are important. And so I think What we need to do now is we need to branch out. We need to get more people on board and we need to make sure that our messages are tailed to those people. And that's also why, I mean, I represent a company um, and I represent an association that's made of corporates. And I say that a lot and I talk about money a lot and I talk about growth a lot and I talk about jobs a lot. And I do that on purpose because... We can see when you look at the European Parliament, for instance, and also at member states, the hesitation comes from the investment, right? The hesitation comes from the parties to the center right. And so for me, the fact that this is actually good business is very, very important to highlight. 
because the people who are currently struggling to mobilize are those people for whom this is perceived as a threat against business and as a threat against people's uh, independence, if you like. Yeah, yeah, it's about uh, making sense at many different levels, including the, the financial one. Absolutely. So that's why it's really important for me to keep on saying, you know what, member states, this is actually good for you because your companies will sell more, your construction center, uh, sector will grow. Those jobs t- tend to be local. So it's also local growth. So if you invest in this, if you invest properly in energy efficiency of buildings, for instance, that's actually a growth packet for your whole society and everyone will benefit from it because the money will land down in the local communities, mm-hmm. right? So that's very important. So I think we need to, we still have quite a lot of work to do there in terms of making sure that we have that broader narrative. Then I think the other thing is we're very convinced about what we do, but we're also fairly geeky in what we say. And we know from various research, I mean, as frustrating as it is, I mean, climate change deniers, for instance, they are just not convinced by facts. They are convinced by emotions. And so I think we need to bear that in mind when we talk, because everything we say is absolutely true. We've got the proof to back it up. But the people we're talking to are not necessarily interested in the truth as presented the way we do it. And that, I think, is also a point of discussion, right? Again, I mean, how can we forge an emotional connection with people on the things that matter to them, right? Yeah, yeah. it's the polar bear you mentioned at the beginning. Like, uh, a polar yes. bear is, baby polar yeah. bear is cute, so you want to protect them. Yeah. And then we're also a little bit back to your discussion about energy poverty, because of course it would make sense in some ways to target all the funding at the energy poor, but the energy poor don't tend to vote centre-right. Mm-hmm. So if we need to get those people on board as well, we have to have a broader structure there as well that also benefits people at large, because otherwise you're going to lose that whole population. Mm-hmm. And no government wants to do that. No MP wants to do that, right? So I think also there, there is sort of the pragmatism of what isolated looks to be the perfect way forward. And then there's a way forward that might be slightly less ideal, but actually brings everyone with you. And that is what we need. Mm-hmm. So interesting. If you're creating a situation where in member states, only certain people voting for certain parties are in favor, we're just not going to get anywhere. And that's a reality. And that's Brussels for you as well, right? But it's also member state. It's about compromise. It's about moving forward. Yeah. So I think those things are very, and when you look at the data today, I mean, no one does, or very few people do in-debt renovations, right? I mean, the figures that the commission put together are now three, four years old. But at the time, they were talking about less than 1% renovations uh, at European level every year. And out of those, it was less than one-fourth that were actually as energy efficient as possible, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. The rest of people were getting rooms or bathrooms or whatever uh, that's sort of visible. And, and then we're back to sort of life quality, right? Uh, things that they perceived making like a positive difference in their life. And our job is to say, but hang on a minute, actually doing these renovations that betters your indoor air climate, for instance, and lowers your energy bill also offers increased uh, life quality, not just a shiny new kitchen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, for people, it seems more likely that they will invest in, I don't know, a new bathtub than, uh, than, than really into solar panels. Because in one hand, it's, uh, it's um, the benefit is immediate, where the, on the other one, it, it's not as uh, perceptible. And there are also an unfortunate trade because we sell windows, right? And I mean, it's visible. You 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 get new windows. It's uh, you have left transport, so you have more daylight. Uh, you have better uh, ventilation, so on the fourth, right? So uh, 
So, so I, I do think, I mean, you do have to come up with something that brings population with you because if we sit with something ideal but not implementable at member state level for whatever reason, then it's a very good idea that just never saw the day of light, right? Yeah, so, so very good ideas need to trickle down to uh, the real economy and to the real life of the people. Absolutely. Human beings and polar bears included, right? Absolutely, absolutely. There needs to be something in it for all of us, right? And what makes you really hopeful for the future? We are reaching the end of our conversation. Oof, I mean, that's a process that I am really hopeful for the future, right? And um, sometimes I am, sometimes I'm really not. But you know what, when I sit in these discussions and we talk about these sort of details about sort of innovation, for instance, about energy efficiency and how we get the message out to more people, I think about the fact that we have a long way to go, but we've also come a long way. When I look at where the community is today versus where we were when I first started working uh, at Danforth with URAs in 2011, the discussion is on a whole different level. You know, we just had the, uh, again, the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive uh, parliamentary uh, vote uh, last week. That was mainstream news, not necessarily in with a positive tone of voice, but it was mainstream news. That is a huge change. I mean, five years ago, no mainstream paper would have picked up on this. So what we're doing matters. And when you do something that matters, uh, when you do something that can have a profound impact, you are also naturally going to get more opposition because people realize now that this is a change in my perception for the better, in other people's perception for, for the worse. But what we do is now so important that more people feel the need to engage. And that is overall positive. And that means we've achieved something. And that means that we're also a threat to some. And that, even though that sounds negative, is actually positive because that means we've arrived on a level of importance that we can really build on. And it also makes me positive that the EPD, if it comes through somewhat unscathed from the council process, will actually be a huge leap in terms of where we're, in terms of putting in place, as I said, these boundaries in terms of what change we need by then. And that will create a market and that makes me hopeful. So I think there are things to look forward to. You know, I'm impatient by nature. I'd like to go faster, but we shouldn't forget that we've actually reached um, a hell of a lot and we're moving to the next level. And there is an overall ambition and acceptance of the importance of the topic, not the execution, but the importance to do something that is far beyond what we could have expected even a couple of years ago. So can I say now that you are a good lobbyist or a lobbyist for good, for the common good? Yes, I think so, right? I mean, I... I think for me, when you're a lobbyist, you're really sort of the forefront, right? I mean, I, I am Velux, I am EuroAce, I am Energy and Climate. And so for me, it's very important that I wake up in the morning and know I'm not naive. I'm, I'm not changing the world, but I'm working on topics and on agendas that will help change the world for the better. And that makes me feel good. I love this way of concluding our conversation. Thank you so much, Julie. Uh, it's been extremely insightful. So until next time, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.